You're listening to audio from Cities Church. You can find more resources and learn about our ministry by visiting citieschurch.com. Well, it often feels like anxiety is the air that we breathe today. And whether you consider yourself an anxious person or not, you cannot deny the fact that fear and anxiety pervade our cultural landscape. And anxiety, of course, has a wide range of intensity. For some, you may experience a nagging background worry, which your mind drifts to during the lulls of the day. And others of you battle all-consuming, panic-inducing, debilitating fears about circumstances outside of your control. And control is a key word. Anxiety mainly stems from our inability to control the world around us. We feel threatened by a potential crisis, and our anxiety spikes in proportion with our inability to control our circumstances. We should also note the future orientation of anxiety. It's far less a fear about what is happening right here and right now, and is much more concerned with what is to come, what crisis may come as a result of the here and now which is why we can experience anxiety even in times of relative peace because there's always the fear-inducing what-ifs or a skepticism that the experience of peace is not going to last. And the instability of our times, well, that doesn't help matters either. Not only are we unable to control the things that are happening around us, But so often, we either don't trust those who are in control, or worse, we fear that no one is in control at all. And whether we're talking about the realm of politics, finances, health, personal safety, or relationships, we all feel an instability or an unpredictability regarding the future. So, for the most part, we base our predictions off of news headlines or social media reactions. And of course, these sources only feed our fears and prepare us for more gloom and doom. And as a result, is it any wonder that we are such an anxious society? And even here this morning, many of us have spent this past week eating the bread of anxious toil. Christian or not, none of us are immune to the natural fears that arise from our inability to control every part of our lives. So then, the question before us is, when crisis looms large and it feels like your world is about to fall apart, where do you turn? And to whatever degree you're wrestling with anxieties this morning, I believe that God wants us to turn to him. And I believe that God intends for Psalm 11 to speak to our troubled times and bring peace to our anxious hearts. So to that end, would you pray with me? Father, you know every one of us in this room. We're seen by you. You hear our silent thoughts. And even our hearts are not hidden from you. By your spirit and through your word, would you meet us this morning where each of us are at? Would you grant us rest where there's restlessness? 
peace where there is strife and replace our fear with faith in you. We ask that you would illuminate your word to us to the end that we see you, ourselves, and the world that you have created in light of your revelation. And we ask all of this in the name of the one who loves us and gave himself for us, Jesus our Lord. Amen. So looking here at Psalm 11, beyond knowing that King David wrote the psalm, we don't know a whole lot about the particular circumstances that inspired this song. But we do know that it is a song. You can see in the superscript right above the first verse, to the choir master. And that little superscript is not something that the editors of your English Bible just tacked on. It's actually included in the earliest Hebrew manuscripts. And I point this out because I want for us to remember as we go through this psalm that David wrote it with the intention that it would be sung. So it's good and right for us to go through it verse by verse and understand the content of the lyrics, but I don't want for us to miss the forest for the trees and forget that the primary aim of this psalm is not that you would study it, but that you would sing it. That said, I have three things that I'd like for us to see this morning. First, I want us to understand David's situation. Secondly, I want for us to understand David's response. And third, I want us to understand how this psalm applies to us. So beginning with David's situation, let's dive in. Psalm 11 starts with David's declaration, in the Lord I take refuge. And this is one of those statements that we so often see in the Psalms that might sound great on a Hallmark card or look really awesome on a flower-filled Instagram post. But for David, his declaration of taking refuge in the Lord isn't just a nice sentiment or a self-help mantra to get him through a tough time. David knows from experience that the Lord is his refuge. There are countless examples of God delivering David And I'd like for us to briefly look at one. So if you have your Bible, you can go ahead and flip a few hundred pages back to 1 Samuel 17. Now, most of us know this story well. Israel, under the leadership of King Saul, was at war with the Philistine army, and specifically that Philistine giant Goliath. 1 Samuel 17, 10 through 11, describe the situation. Goliath comes out and says, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. When Saul and all Israel heard the words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. Then, a few verses later, while the men of Israel continued to cower and refused to face Goliath, David, a little shepherd boy, arrived bringing food from his father for the Israeli army. Now, David at that time, he was a nobody, but he heard Goliath's mockery of Israel, and he knew that something had to be done. So David appeared before King Saul, and beginning in 1 Samuel 17, 32, here's what David said. David said to Saul, let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. 
And Saul said to David, you are not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him, for you are but a youth, and he has been a man of war from his youth. But David said to Saul, your servant used to keep sheep for his father. And when there came a lion or a bear, and it took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and struck him and delivered it out of his mouth. And if he arose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them, for he has defied the armies of the living God. Here's the part I don't want for us to miss. How can a kid like David be so bold before the king of Israel? How can he have so much confidence that he is going to have victory over Goliath? Well, it's not just youthful arrogance. Look at what David says in verse 37. David said, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. You see, David's confidence for future deliverance is grounded in his past experience of the Lord delivering him. So when David says in Psalm 11.1, in the Lord I take refuge, his statement is backed by the full force of the Lord saving David from lions, bears, and even Goliath, the strongest man in the known world. David knows that it's not his strength that saved him or his prowess as a warrior. So he rightly attributes his safety and salvation to the Lord's care for him. The statement, in the Lord I take refuge, it's not empty words or grasping at straws. It's a tested and proven safety plan for every storm. Now, as we move on to verses 2 and 3, remember this psalm is a song. And one of my favorite things about good songwriters is their ability to communicate intense emotion in a single line. David's a good songwriter. And so, at least the way that I read it, the turn in verse 1 is scathing. In the Lord I take refuge. How can you say to my soul? I imagine that the singers are digging in a little bit here, much like a good blues or R&B singer often does. And that there's just a little bit of disgust on their faces as those lyrics pass through their lips. How can you say to my soul? Kind of carries the same feeling that uh, Jesus' statement to Peter had when he said, get behind me, Satan. And it prepares us to be appalled by the counsel that David has offered. So what is the counsel that David receives? And who's it coming from? There's a few possibilities for who gives David this counsel. Could be an enemy mocking him. Could be an insight to David's own internal wrestlings between faith and fear. Most likely, though, the counsel is coming from an Israelite friend, someone who sincerely cares about David and the people of Israel, someone who worships the same God as David and shares his faith. I highly doubt that this friend is trying to give poor counsel. Most likely, he's just scared. And advice that stems from fear usually shouldn't be followed. But if we look at verses 2 and 3, 
It makes sense that David's counselor is scared. Consider the scene. There are wicked people on the loose. They're armed. They've taken aim. They're under the cover of dark. And their targets are the upright in heart, namely David and his friends. They're the worst kind of enemy. They're powerfully positioned to do great harm, but nobody knows when or where they're going to strike. And what the counselor fears above all else is, is that when they do strike, the foundations will be destroyed and the righteous will be doomed. The foundations refer to the bedrock of society, Israel's laws and customs, which were given to them by God. From David's friend's perspective, the whole nation of Israel was in jeopardy of crumbling should the wicked succeed in their evil plots. So what's the friend's counselor to David? David, we have got to get out of here now. Flee like a bird to your mountain. Head to the hills. And let's be real. If we knew that there were wicked people armed with arrows just waiting for us to walk through their crosshairs, many of us would think that this friend's counsel is quite reasonable. We might even agree with the assessment. But to David, the suggestion is outrageous. In the Lord, David takes refuge. For him, there is no mountain to flee to other than the Lord himself. We'll revisit the counselor's question, if the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do a little later? But for now, let's move on to the second part of this message and take a look at David's response to his fearful friend's counsel. David does not counter his friend with a practical plan for safety. Nor does he deny that there indeed are wicked people who are currently hunting down the upright. He does not downplay the circumstances or offer a trite counter perspective about merely seeing the bright side of things or trying to find the silver lining. Instead, David reframes the discussion. He lifts his eyes above the temporal situation, and he looks to God. What does David see? Take a look at verses 4 through 7. The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes see. His eyelids test the children of man. The Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. Let him rain coals on the wicked. Fire and sulfur and a scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteous deeds. The upright shall behold his face. There's three things I want for us to see here in David's response. First, the Lord is not threatened by the wicked. Second, the Lord will execute judgment upon the wicked. And third, the Lord knows the righteous and will reward them with, him, will reward them with himself. First, the Lord is not threatened by the wicked. There's two realities that David highlights in verse 4. One that the Lord is in his holy temple, which is in heaven, which is well out of the reach of the arrows of the wicked. The foundations of his dwelling place cannot be jeopardized by mere man. The Lord's throne is eternally secure, and the foundations of it will hold. Praise God. 
And two, the Lord sees his eyelids test the children of man. Though the wicked may hide themselves in the cover of dark, the Lord sees them clear as day. They cannot escape his watchful eye. And the imagery here is vivid. The reference to the Lord's eyelids testing the children of man communicates that the Lord is is leaning in, squinting his eyes, closely examining the activities of his creation. His watch is an active watching. He's not distant or removed, but he has taken a personal interest in the affairs of mankind. So, while David and his friends may be surprised by the attacks of the wicked, the wicked will not surprise God. Second, not only are the wicked unable to threaten the Lord, but he will bring judgment upon them in due time. Before elaborating on this point, let me make a quick note about the Lord's hatred for the wicked. Many of us can get tripped up on the thought of God hating anyone or anything. God is love, after all, right? But as creatures made in God's image, we all intuitively understand the Lord's hatred of the wicked inasmuch as we all long for good to conquer evil. Proof of this is the billions of dollars that are spent at the box office anytime a new Marvel film comes out. No one recoils in shock when Iron Man defeats the wicked who intend to destroy entire cities full of people. In fact, we cheer for such triumph. We want for Iron Man or any hero to subdue the wicked and save the lives of the righteous. So the fact that God hates the wicked and those who love violence is not shocking, nor should it make us squirm. In fact, it is good news. It is good that our God hates evil. Amen? And again, remembering that this is a song, look at the comparison that David is making between the weapons of the wicked and the means of the Lord. Sure, The wicked are armed with bows, strings, and arrows. But the Lord, the Lord is able to rain down coals and send forth wind filled with fire and sulfur. And the point is that even the wicked's strongest defenses cannot shield them from the Lord's righteous judgment upon their violence and evil deeds. The wicked will get what they deserve. The one who loves violence will receive violence as the portion of their cup. The third and last thing I want for us to see in this passage is the reward of the righteous. Look again at verse 7. For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteous deeds. The upright shall behold his face. And for a great definition of wickedness and righteousness, I'd encourage you to listen to Pastor Joe's sermon on Psalm 9. In that message, he defined righteousness as upholding the worth and value of the glory of God as God. Righteousness is the fundamental allegiance to doing everything for God's glory and a commitment to always act in such a way that upholds his infinite value. 
And this is an important definition for us to grasp, because the better we grasp it, the better we're able to understand David's final argument for taking refuge in the Lord. David was not a perfect man. You know that. Far from it. But he was a righteous man. And the overarching theme of his life was a commitment to uphold the value and worth of the glory of God, which is seen in the ways that David treasured God above all else. And because God was David's highest treasure, there could be no greater reward for him than to one day behold God's face. David says as much in Psalm 27, 4, one thing I have asked of the Lord that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon his beauty and to inquire in his temple. And unless you too love God above all else, I don't expect that David's logic will make a whole lot of sense. But for those who love him, David's argument makes perfect sense. Just imagine with me for a moment what it will be like to behold the face of the Lord. I imagine that it's similar in a way to beholding the face of my wife or my children. I mean, just thinking about their faces, I can't help but smile. And there's so much joy in unhurriedly, affectionately being able to look upon their faces. And I imagine that beholding the face of God will be like that, but to the power of 10,000 sons. I can imagine nothing greater, actually, than looking into his eyes and feeling the warmth of his gaze. I can feel the blazing radiance of his smile. I can hear the deep chuckle that bubbles up underneath his jovial speech. And I can almost smell, smell that freshness of his breath, the very breath by which he breathed life into the world. And more than anything, that's, that's what I want. I want to behold his face. I want to be with him forever. And that's what David is saying too. And the upright will be with God. So how does David counter his friend's counsel? David reframes the discussion. He does not deny the immediate threat to himself and those with him, but he reminds them all of who their God is. He's the God who is enthroned in heaven, whose foundations are eternally secured. He is the God who sees the activity of the wicked and will judge them with righteousness. And he is the God who protects his people and provides them with the very best thing that he has to give himself. If fleeing means taking action apart from faith in God, David says, count me out. So what does all of this mean for us right here today? How does Psalm 11 meet us in our anxieties. There's many ways that this psalm can be rightly applied to your circumstances. The main thrust of David's argument is that you should not allow fear and anxiety to drive your life. Rather, 
when you are scared or feel overwhelmed or threatened, you should first and foremost take refuge in the Lord by remembering who he is, what he is capable of, and the reward for staying close to him. Doing so will give you the grounding and the stability necessary to face life's difficulties from a settled position of faith in God's goodness and sovereignty. So go to him first. Put your hope in him above all else. And from there, with the Lord's help, decide how to wisely respond to the situations that scare you. And this is a far, far better way of living than being frantically driven by fear. So there's many ways that we could apply that then to specific situations. But I want to dial in on one application of this psalm in particular. And to do so, I want to revisit the question, if the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? This question haunts us, and it it has for many years, especially in the Western church. As it relates to the church and Christianity in America, there are many Christian leaders, pastors, and writers who have sounded the alarms about the attacks on religious liberties or the rejection of Christian values and ethics within a secular culture, and the doom of society at large as the foundations of law and order and the church herself are apparently crumbling in our post-Christian age. And like David, I'm not here to say that there aren't real concerns there. I'm not wanting to offer reductionistic solutions to massive issues. But the way that the slippery slope arguments often go, that the church is doomed and that the whole world is going to hell in a handbasket, they're completely overblown. Even the idea of us living in a post-Christian society is offensive. Sure, I understand it as a sociological label, but the implication that the gospel has been drained of its power and that our society has somehow moved beyond the kingship of Jesus Christ? That's ridiculous. And so, yes, many of us are concerned about the stability of the, the sustainability of the Christian faith. We consider the dominant culture around us and our struggles to engage our neighbors with the gospel. And then we wonder... What will the church be like for our children and grandchildren? We feel anxious knowing that there are those in our city who hate the fact that we're gathering here, and they would love nothing more than to shut this whole thing down. We don't know when or how they'll strike, but we feel the threat, and with it comes a temptation to flee. And for some, fleeing looks like hunkering down and taking your Christian faith all but underground. And for others, fleeing looks like running to powerful people or politicians who promise to restore the social and moral foundations of our society, never mind their own corruption and instability. Either way, these tend to be faithless, fear-fueled responses by which we try to regain control over the world around us. And... Anything that is not done in faith is sin. So instead, we must be people who take refuge in the Lord. 
And remember, for David, taking refuge in the Lord is not just an abstract idea or a nice sentiment to get him through. David's retreat to the Lord was based on his real experience of the Lord's salvation. So brothers and sisters, when fear strikes and panic takes hold, consider Jesus. Consider your salvation in him, the refuge of your souls. Consider the one who said to the Jewish leaders, destroy this temple, and in three days, I will raise it up. At the crucifixion of Jesus, the foundations of the universe took the greatest blow they could have ever been dealt in the death of God the Son. On that cross, Jesus felt the burning coals and fiery wind of God's wrath as he took the wickedness of sinful people, such as ourselves, upon himself, so that we might be spared from God's righteous judgment. And then, for three dark days, it did appear that the foundations had been destroyed. It seemed as though evil had triumphed over good. But... But on Sunday, there was an empty tomb and a resurrected Lord. The foundations stood firm, and all the powers of hell could not overtake Jesus, our refuge. So yes, trials and threats and all sorts of terrible things may come upon you as a follower of Christ. Earthly kingdoms and nations may fall. Relationships may fail. Markets may collapse. Your body may break. As Christians, we are not exempted from the effects of living in a sin-saturated world. But you guys, if we are trusting in Jesus, we're going to be okay. We are going to make it. As sure as Jesus lives the foundations will hold. His kingdom will prevail. His gospel will advance. And as we sung, he will hold you fast, which means we can all take a breath. We can take a breath and we can rest. And we can rest and we can return to our simple calling to faithfully follow Jesus, walking as he walked, loving as he loved, and trusting that even if, even if following him leads to death, he will be with us even there, receiving us into his presence, where for endless ages his face we will behold. Amen. And to those of you who have not taken refuge in Jesus, but have instead fled to other mountains where you have found no safety or salvation, I plead with you, come. Come and take refuge in Jesus today. Come. Bring your fears and your failings before him. Come. The refuge of your soul invites you to come. So would you pray with me?
Father, thank you. Thank you for Jesus, and thank you for the refuge that he is for us. By his blood, you have saved us from death and from sin. And by his resurrection, you have promised us eternal life and eternal joy in your presence. And if you have done this, will you not save us from all lesser threats to our well-being? Will you not be with us in our hours of need? And the resounding answer to these questions is, Yes, of course you will be with us. Of course you will save us. You will not allow a single one of us to be plucked from the safety that we have found in Jesus, our refuge. Height nor depth, life nor death can separate us from him. So keep us near to you, O Lord. By your Spirit's help, let us continually lift our anxieties to you. And flee from fear to the rock of our salvation alone. For your glory and for our joy, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. And now, this morning, we turn to celebrate eight people. Eight people who have made Jesus their refuge. They have found salvation and safety in him. And through the act of baptism, they testify to the gospel's enduring power to save. And we understand now why David didn't just want his psalm to be read, why he wanted it to be sung. These kinds of truths should stir up affections in us. And so as the uh, baptismal uh, candidates come up, would you stand And would you join me in singing together on Christ the solid rock I stand. <laughs> 